Gilbert Gottfried's going to be on this podcast, and I'm going to do a whole Gilbert Gottfried uh, introduction, and it'll really uh, it'll make you cry. It's going to be so beautiful. But before <laughs> before Gilbert gets here, uh, I have Gary Goldman uh, returning the first uh, the first returning guest of the moment. Hi, Gary. Hi, Bri. Do you do you have uh, less apprehension this time? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Think, you think that's because you're here to promote something? Yeah, I'm here to promote something. There'll be no heaviness, and I haven't spat on anybody since the last time I was, I was here. So good. Yeah. I mean, you know, people should definitely go back if they want context and listen to the uh, last episode where uh, I don't want to say I got you all crying, but almost <laughs> we were close. It was heavy, man. So uh, I invited you back to come on here because you're doing something really cool that I thought people who love the pod or love your stand-up specials or your comedy albums or just seeing you live yes. might want to know about. So uh, let's talk about what it is. Yes. I have a, a tour, my first tour in my 20-year career. You don't consider torgasm? <laughs> I mean, you were, it, it, well, could you put the mic any closer to your face, it wasn't, by the way? It wasn't, it wasn't a Gary Goldman tour. It was that was a Dane Cook tour. All right, but that's where people Dane would have seen orgasm. you perform in front of a large audience. Yeah, I'm trying to promote this this tour that is my first tour. Uh, that first I, tour. That I, yeah, my and, first. And there's some special Gary things Goldman about tour. this tour, right? Um, yeah, it's eleven cities, and I've already sold out uh, added shows because the first one sold out in in several cities. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, in Toronto, Boston, New York. And Minneapolis. Call them, call them markets. It sounds markets. Yeah. Okay. I already sold a few markets out because <laughs> in your accent, market sounds better than. Cities. Yeah. I sold out some markets. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and it starts this week in um, Scottsdale, Arizona, and and it ends in New York at the Bowery Ballroom, and all the tickets are available through my website at garygolman.com. Great. Well, I, I will say, having seen you uh, perform. Many times over the last few years, uh, I can uh, unreservedly recommend that people go uh, and see you do the thing that you do. And, and Levine and I were talking today about uh, this line of yours that just killed us, which is describing when you're trying to describe somebody uh, as smart in a Boston accent, you describe them as wicked smart, desk sergeant smart. Yeah, desk sergeant smart or shift supervisor at Dunkin' Donuts smart. Are you saying those are the same? Um, they're right there. Yeah. Uh, shift supervisor and desk sergeant. Yeah. So if you guys want to go hear about that, <laughs> but, but what do you? They're also, this show. The other unique thing about the show, the unique thing is you're doing rock clubs, not yes, comedy clubs, right? Yes, yes. I mean, a, a few comedy clubs, but no chain comedy clubs or anything like that. Sort of uh, established comedy comedy clubs, not restaurant comedy clubs like Helium in Philadelphia, and. Largo, I guess, is not really a comedy club, but it's not a rock club. Oh, and that's, uh, in, that's in Los Angeles in October. So you're going to go rock the house. Yes. And it culminates in a, in a special that I'm making with the Apostle and, and Bobcat Goldthwaite will be directing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. He's I'm very terrific, excited about that. He's a really terrific director. Yeah. He's a great artist. Yeah. He's a really good director. <laughs> Why? I don't know. It was here. The moment was here. It was. Uh, how, am I, how am I going to leave that off the table? I thought he was a terrific stand-up and actor, and uh, and, yeah, he's and he your directs director. great stuff. Yeah. People, go out there, see the gull. Most of your listeners are in Los Angeles, so see me at Lago. Lago. Most of my listeners are in Los Angeles. Where do you get that from? I don't know. I just picture them as being um, screenwriters and industry folk. 
A lot of them? Oh, no, no it's a much deeper, wider yeah, group than I that. I didn't think. Maybe I won't put this on in front of the... Yeah. Maybe maybe we won't do it. Sorry. Hey, people, go see Gary Goldman. <laughs> Gary, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. See you. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I am... Um, listen, you've been, if you've been listening for a while, uh, you'll know that I am uh, very upfront when I talk about the guests before they come in. And uh, I just have to be, I have to be honest to say, this is the first time doing this podcast, I guess since episode one. Episode one, I was, I was a little bit nervous because I hadn't done it before. Here, I'm a little bit, I'm a little nervous and incredibly excited because uh, Gilbert Gottfried is going to be here soon. And there's no uh, other way to say it, but that to me, Gilbert is a giant. He's absolutely uh, one of the important artists, creative people of my lifetime. Uh, I saw Gilbert uh, when I was a kid doing stand-up in New York on one of the first episodes of the show, David Steinberg, the comedian, the legendary comedian was on. And I'll tell Gilbert this story, but it was David who took me to see Gilbert when I was 14 years old. And if I count the 20 or 30 most significant artistic interactions I had in my life, that would be in there. And since then, uh, I've been fascinated with Gilbert, with why he does what he does, with how he does what he does. And I have no idea how to have a conversation with him. I'm going to give it my best shot. His podcast, by the way, is my current favorite podcast. It's unlike any other. And uh, I think he's going to be here soon. He is. He's walking in. And we're going to start in a minute. This is going to be great. So I, I, I was doing your introduction before you walked in, but I realized uh, normally, you know, when I do that, I tell about the guest and who they are, but I made the whole introduction about me. Oh, okay. Well, let's, I'm sure you've had a more interesting career yeah. than mine. No, so I think I definitely... I'll was... go... Well, what have you done in your career, and I'll talk about it. That's great. Oh, uh, well, I, I was first in the music business. I I, uh, I remember the first thing I got into was the music business. I particularly liked the banjo. I, it was folk yeah. music, mostly. Yes, yes. I, I did a lot of folk music. Uh, uh, me and uh, Woody Guthrie uh, used to... Travel the rails together. Yeah, the hobo lifestyle. That's exactly what it was. I was a hobo. Yes. Let me let me shut this off because. Uh, okay, that's fine. But the, he, here's the, here's the thing, though. What I should have said is that Gilbert Gottfried. I'm sure you know this, my audience. Gilbert Gottfried is uh, a star of stage and screen for the last hundred years, particularly my folk music. <laughs> and, yes. And oh yeah, w which tuning do you like to use? Standard tuning on the acoustic. Ah uh, yes, standards the only one I go for, and and you know I used to be one of the weavers. Ah, good night, Irene. 
Good night, Irene. And then I had read that yes. when the mugwumps split up, which was, as you know, the, the love and spoonful, half the love and spoonful, half the mobs and the papas, that for a brief minute, you tried to keep them together. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, the same way I tried to keep Martin and Lewis together, I tried to keep the mugwumps. Uh, the, the mugwumps. The mugwumps. But I guess you were changing, you figured change. I the- changed the name to keep it hip. That's, that's important. I think that's great. Perfect. So, uh, no, it's great. Thank, I'm thrilled that you're here, man. Um, what I did say when I was uh, talking about you is, and, and there's no way you could know this, but uh, anytime I could get into a comedy club as a kid, I would come and see you perform. It, it was, to me, like the way you described seeing Jack Benny or something for the first time. Like it, it changed my entire sort of like understanding of what funny was. So this is exciting to be able to ask you a bunch of questions about how and why you do what you do. Uh, Okay. But um, I wish I hadn't confessed to those murders. Well, that's the thing. At the end of this, I'll decide if I'm going to turn the tape over or not or edit that part out. Do you know, I grabbed the steering wheel. (laughs) In which which, which one is this? Is this James Dean? Uh, Jane Mansfield. Perfect. I was in the car with her, and I thought it would be funny. To play chicken. <laughs> now, what I want to know is that when in Dylan's motorcycle accident, why couldn't you finish the job? <laughs> because what I had heard was you put, what did you put down in the street? Uh, was it a wood block or how did you make him crash? Yeah, it, it, I, I don't like to give, a, a magician never gives away his secrets. But why do you think he lived? Yeah, that's something no one will ever. Dylan was in a motorcycle accident? <laughs> yeah. In the late 60s. Oh, yeah. And I heard wh- when he was in the accident, his uh-huh. uh, he screamed out, I've just been in an accident. And I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> that is after show business died for you, essentially, right? That's why you asked the question. Uh, yes. When does show business end in your mind? Uh, when Don McLean uh, told oh, me. <laughs> now, McLean somehow is still alive. I'd like you to explain that yes, to me. Yes, that I don't know, because everyone who, who wrote songs like that died a horrible car accident, like James Croce and that other guy. Jim, that, Jim Croce went by the formal nommed professional James, I guess. Yeah, yeah. James Jim Croce. Jim Croce and, and the other guy, um, 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 uh, a taxi driver. Uh, Harry Chapin. Harry Chapin. Both of them wrote songs like that, these really overly long Drawn out, over-involved songs, and God killed them both in a car accident. That's good. Do you believe in God? Yes. Well, uh, in cases like that, I do. (laughs) Just when it ends in Harry Chapin's death. That's great. Harry Chapin, who fed more more hungry people. Bruce Springsteen. But God didn't like Harry Chapin. Well, he didn't like, he didn't mind Taxi. It was Cats in the Cradle. Yeah. Yeah, that one. He would have let him get away with Taxi. Yeah. You can have one. <laughs> but when you add in Cats in the Cradle, which he would always introduce in concert, Harry Chapin, who I loved, by the way, who would always introduce in concert as, uh, this started as a poem my wife wrote. Oh, jeez. Ow, that's horrible. I know you love that. That's horrible. That's, 
perfect. Oh, oh my God! And and uh, it's it's what makes me doubt the existence <laughs> the existence oh, God. of God is that Gordon Lightfoot is still alive. I think he's he is absolutely still with us. Yes. Uh, Steve <laughs> Steve Forbit. Steve, what did Steve Forbit sing? Wait. Uh, Romeo's tune, Meet Me in the Middle of the Night. Oh, you know that song. Yes, yes, yes. So I guess he's so God's, thriving. I think so, he's thriving. So God doesn't live. God doesn't exist. But in a way, Harry Chapin and Croce, those were uh, they were short stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Their songs were longer than their lives. They were like the great short story writer <laughs> Margaret Atwood. Yes. Two very simple standard tuning, mostly. So you must play. I mean, you must know those songs. Oh, yes. In the standard tuning. Yeah. Oh, yes. Because I only, I believe strongly in standard tuning. When you, so the show is called The Moment. Yeah, and like um, what I, what really, and I'm gonna power through because what really interests me is like how uh, people who do remarkable things process big moments, and uh, I was at. Everyone says they were there, but I have proof that I was there at the Hugh Hefner roast. Oh wow! I was with Frank DiGiacomo, who wrote for the Observer, and ended up writing that incredible piece about it. But what I want to know isn't about the aristocrats, because I saw what made I saw the decision to tell that joke. But I want to know what you were thinking in the moments before telling the airplane joke. Uh, if if I gave it any thought, maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> but no, I I just wanted to be like the first one to come out with a truly bad taste uh, September 11th joke. Why? I don't know. It's just the way my mind works. Like, I want to just break the ice, and that's the first thing when I hear tragedies. It's the first thing that pops into my head. Do you you immediately think to yourself, I... Uh, because is it is it the uh, is it the sanctimoniousness that bothers you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it, it gets more and more like... Whenever a sad story breaks, people are calling me up and saying, don't, 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 don't make a joke about that. And it makes me want to even more. And so although you acted or I guess in a way were, were sort of surprised by the reaction because it was weird as you know, half the audience howled at the Empire State Building joke. What was the joke? Oh, yes. It was uh, now. This I is can... ten days after nine eleven. Yes, and uh, the Hugh Hefner roast uh, was almost canceled. It went on. Uh, it was a, in a big, giant, sold-out ho- hotel ballroom, and you uh, came out. And uh, after a long night of, of comedy and everybody being very safe in a way. Yes. And what did you say? I said uh, I have to leave early tonight. I have to fly to L.A. I couldn't get a direct flight. We have to make a stop at the Empire State Building. <laughs> and uh, and everybody, I the, my table howled because although you, uh, in a way, I, I wonder if uh, I wonder if you would understand even characterizing that as, as what we thought it, it was doing was like um, reclaiming that we could f-ing laugh if we wanted. Oh to. yeah. Yeah, I um it it is something like that. Like I feel like the best thing 
in a case like that where they were attacking us and they they uh, blew up uh, two buildings, killed like 3,000 people. And I kind of feel like the best thing you can do in a case like that is to send a message to them. Oh, you know what we're doing right now? We're laughing about it. Yes, and th- but there's something rigorous about how you do what you do that you almost refuse to use a safety net. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like, you know, just getting back to laughing about it, is it kind of um, makes me, it kind of is reminiscent of, think how many of you uh, people listening are going to catch this reference, in Get Smart, yeah. <laughs> when, uh, when, like, Don Adams, as Maxwell Smart, would punch one of the villains and go, you know, take this, you big ape. And he'd punch him, and the guy would still be standing there. And then he'd go, I hope I wasn't out of line with that big (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of feel like if they knew we were still laughing, that they'd have that feeling. They would be Maxwell Smart. Yes. You were yeah. trying to turn them into Maxwell they Smart. They were trying to turn them into... We were chaos. The Don Adams We were version. then chaos somehow. Not, not the Steve Carell version. Of course. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I grew up watching that. And and I mean, as as much as I love Alan Arkin, not... Yeah, Alan Arkin. Uh, Ed Platt is the chief. Well, yeah, the yeah. original Get Smart. Yeah. No, I know you love all those. I remember what he looks like. I didn't have his name as Ed Platt, but uh, I did well, watch every I, episode. I, I got to leave then. Yeah, yeah. you should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get the hell You're out of here. spitting on the that's memory of Ed show. Platt. That's, that's <laughs> your podcast. <laughs> but, but look, Penn, Penn Gillette calls you the Miles Davis of comedy. He said it on your show. He's told me, Penn and I, are uh, we talk a lot. That's, that's because he's got very bad eyesight and thinks I'm black. Well, it's, <laughs> he thinks I'm an old black man on drugs. Well, you're saying Miles, hold on. Are you saying that Miles? <laughs> but what? I, you know, when I was walking over here today, yeah. a lot of people I could hear murmuring, hey, look, it's an old black man on drugs. <laughs> they, they were asking you to play songs from Kind of Blue <laughs> as you were walking over. I, I remember the story. Who was one of the other wild members of the Beach Boys? Well, Brian. Uh, which well, not one? Brian. Brian's the obvious one. The uh, Mike, uh, what's his name? Mike, the, Mike, the main, the Mike Love. Guy. Mike Love, yeah. I think it may have been Mike Glenn Love. Glenn Campbell was in there for a while. Oh, my God. Played a lot I of think, guitar. I think Mike Love might have been the one. It was that he was at some, like, late night hangout, and Miles Davis was there, and Mike Love was going to score some uh, drugs there, and... And some guy, one of uh, Miles Davis's guys, came over to Mike Love and said, Oh, uh, Miles would like you to get him some grass, too. And Mike Love said, uh, Tell uh, Miles to go f*** himself. He ain't God and I ain't room service. Well, <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Also, it's so great because the talent deficit is so enormous yeah. <laughs> between 
those two people. That is crazy. And Beach Boys fans, uh, if you want to get angry that uh, I say Miles was more talented than Mike Love, you know, write me. Tweet now, at me. now, but before you put down the Beach Boys, they sang only Mike Love. Yeah, they sang the theme song to Problem Child. Then I take it all back. Yeah. Well, then I have to go ahead. Who wants to grow up? Who wants responsibility? Oh, no, not me. Who wants to show up and work until you're 93? Oh, no, not yet. Uh, I remain convinced of my original take. (laughs) Now everybody says you're running wild. Okay. No, yeah, I'm listening. I will never cut you. Go with that. I don't care. calling you a problem. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right, here's the thing. <laughs> I'm just you're not it's here here here's the thing, right? Okay, I heard a story that Brian Wilson. Yes. Uh he was once, you know, jamming with some other guy at at his house and he was talking about how hot his uh his sister-in-law was. Like his his wife's sister, how hot she was. And uh, how and how he'd like to nail her, and this guy said, "Well, you know, she's your wife's sister. You can't do that." And and Brian Wilson said to him, "I know, but wouldn't it be nice?" Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> takes away Sorry, the pretty nine eleven. Nine eleven is uh, that's fine, but don't you dare, yes, sir, <laughs> besmirch <laughs> the writing of that. How? That's that's a line that—the Miles Davis thing, here's what I think he means. Yes. I think he means— <laughs> He also compared me to, to Louis Armstrong. No, no, he no. didn't. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's, uh, that's, no, here's what he meant. I'm just powering through because okay. I have—I'm uh, going to actually get an answer, which is— with Miles Davis, when he would turn his back to the audience and play just for himself and for this— group of people who got what he was doing. There was this whole other group of people who were interested as a, a form of a scholarship in figuring out what he was on about. And I'm wondering if for you, when you're doing the thing you do and people are sometimes only taking it at face value, does it ever bug you? Um... Yeah, I guess sometimes. Sometimes it bugs me. Sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the night. But like, who are you when? Who are you at doing it? For? Like, who are you doing it for? So, sometimes, and and I I remember I used to be infamous for this, and people would come in and watch me because sometimes I just clear out an entire room at a club, you walk the room, and and I just didn't care. And um, I I kind of, like, enjoyed that feeling of just getting rid of people and watching them get angry at me and all that stuff. What do you think you got out of it? I don't know. But maybe if I wasn't like that, I'd have a career right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have... But no, because I, I think the truth is you would walk the room, except there would always be a few people there who would hang in with you. Oh, Yeah. All the comedians. 
Yeah, they'd be like the comedians and like some of the wait staff. What do you yeah. think would like? Uh, what do you think would flip the switch? Like when would it? Ha- would you know ahead of time? I'm gonna just do this. Uh, sometimes I just sense it on stage that they weren't listening uh, or they didn't like what I was doing. They weren't laughing and. So then I go even more in that direction that I lost them with. You'd push further yeah. and further. And did you start doing that right when you started doing comedy? Uh, when I first started doing comedy, I was like doing mainly impressions. And um, uh, then later on, when I started branching out and experimenting, I uh, and I st- had other bits, then I would like enjoy watching the audience walk <laughs> Because you knew, do you? I mean, at the time, do you think you knew you were doing something real and legit? And if they were walking out, it was a statement on them, not you. I don't know if I ever thought of it that deep. Yeah, you just wanted it, the feel. You mean you yeah, just wanted the yeah. charge of whatever that emotion yes, was? Yeah. And would you respect them more for going or for staying? <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. No respect for any of them. They're all suckers. Yes. (laughs) Once they paid their money, they were just suckers regardless. But it seems like now when you do an impression, it it seems like some of the impressions now are fueled that that the thing that bugs you the most uh, is like showbiz people who are are, are sanctimonious. Oh, yeah. Well, it was it was always a weird. See, I think Jerry Lewis truly was the nutty professor. Like one minute he's this lovable, funny guy, and then the next minute he really is Buddy Love. Right. And you know, talking about <laughs> the the. the Relationship, the love affair that Dean and I had. And the reason we split up is because I saw the pain that Dean was going through. And I couldn't stand being there watching him suffer like that. What's worse, Jerry, that feeling or when those critics don't understand the the level of authorship in your films? Well, what the critics don't understand is that I speak the international language, which is mine, is the international language. And I don't make films for the critics. I make it for the people. And I have always been nine And I feel like I grew up till I was nine. And when I go out there, when Jerry goes out there, when I send Jerry out on (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, uh, I know that you wrote a book on on how to make films. Uh, It doesn't seem to be in print anymore. It... The reason it's not in print. Yeah, is that that people didn't want it? No. Are you sure? There, there were riots at the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 yet you uh you love um 
old show business, obviously. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about your 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 joke. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, you know, one one good thing, though, I did meet Jerry Lewis. I met him a few times. I met him recently at some event where I did the same jokes that um, uh, Shecky Green had walked out on me for doing. And and uh, Jerry Lewis came up to me afterwards and said, you are out of your f-ing mind. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And I thought that was, I, I was He stunned. gave you comment B-16. Yes. <laughs> I can't believe he doesn't usually pull B-16 out. Yeah. That's really special. Yeah. I thought, oh, my God. Well, I, I got to say that uh, if, if people don't know about your podcast, uh, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. It is, um, I have to say, my favorite new podcast. And the Dick Cavett episode and the episode with Penn in particular are, I think, where people should start. And, and Penn tells a Jerry Lewis story that's really about Penn. Yes, yes. That I think, other than your Mike Love story, is going to be the best story anyone tells in a podcast this year. I mean, the, the Mike Love story is yeah. pretty great. Oh. oh, you can hear the podcast on GilbertGottfried.com, uh, and you could subscribe to it on iTunes and SideshowNetwork.com. I subscribe to it on yeah. iTunes, which it must be where you subscribe to mine. Oh, yes. I'm also yes. on iTunes. Yes. I'm, now, and you, oh, so you were saying about, yeah. About the, which thing? The Jerry Lewis story. Well, Penn. no. Oh, Penn tells this incredible Jerry Lewis story that's, I think, that's more about Penn than it is about Jerry Lewis. Uh, but the kind of delight that you have in talking to these people, uh, what made you decide to do this podcast and then has the reception to it and then also the kind of conversation you've been able to have, has it been kind of surprising to you? Uh, it's, uh, oh, you mean when I'm talking to the guests? Well, the, and then the people are like really digging it so hard. Oh, yeah. I I am amazed that when people come up to me, well, you know, uh, uh, a few months back, I did Turner Classic Movies, yeah. and I sat with Robert Osborne. I presented for, you know, I the original of Mice and Men, Freaks, uh, the conversation with Gene Hackman and Burt Lancaster and The Swimmer. And, and I had people emailing me and tweeting saying, I had never heard of this film or that film, and I loved it. I'm so glad you presented that. And I find that's what I'm getting with the podcast. People are saying, I had no idea who Larry Storch was. I had no idea who Marty Allen was. But, boy, they were great, and I love listening to them. But it, it's not a dry show at all. In other words, it's not like some recitation of uh, the history of cinema. It's like these incredible stories about how you sort of processed watching those people and how your guests inter- interacted with them. Other than the Joe Franklin episode, which is just him telling you <laughs> each and every <laughs> item of memorabilia he has. Now, now he in jo- his first- Joe Franklin says that on one uh, episode of his show, he had both James Dean and Al Pacino. And we kind of figured this out, like, 
James Dean, uh, Al Pacino would have been about 10. <laughs> here, here, I don't do, unlike you, I don't do impressions. But can you just ask me, just go ahead and ask me uh, if you've had, if I've had any people on this podcast, I'll be Joe Franklin. Just ask okay. if I've had them on. Ha- have you had um, John Barrymore? You know, it's funny. I had John on 14, I had him on 14 times last year with Drew. And what was great was Jade, Drew's mother. So it was Drew and Jade and the great Mr. Barrymore. And, and, and they sang a rondelet. And working the camera was Lionel. We didn't film yeah. it. But no, but, but uh, the first time it was funny because Drew was uh, just still in. They didn't even have sonograms then, but we somehow produced the sonogram. <laughs> as, who else? The makeup woman was Ethel. Oh, yeah, okay. him. I had them on a uh, hundred times. Uh, uh, Harold Lloyd. It's funny you should ask. First of all, not only not only did he tell me that he was my best friend, he told me we were best friends. But he told me that uh, if I wanted him here, that all I had to do was reanimate the urn. <laughs> and he would, no, I mean, it was, I, it was crazy. And so here's a question, right? You are so unsentimental in your work. Yes. So cutting in, in what you do, like when you're performing. Yes. Uh, you'll give no quarter, not to the audience, not to yourself and the material. Where does this huge sentimental streak for this old-timey, starker thing yeah. come from, do you think? Well, I, I've always uh, had this thing, like this love-hate thing with old show business. Right. And like Jerry Lewis, perfect example. Like, I kind of hate Jerry Lewis in that whole sanctimonious... But I love it at the same time. You mean you love that he has like the the balls to just be it? Oh yeah, yeah. And and I mean I love the early Jerry Lewis certainly. The guy well, even that well, well yeah. he was a great filmmaker. I mean yeah. the funny part about that guy is he has yes. no idea what was great about him. Yeah. He thinks all the wrong stuff is what was great, yeah. right? <laughs> But but uh, here now now but you had Joe Franklin and it was like if if you were Joe Franklin and I said to you, um, is it true Joe that you had uh, I heard that you had all the Beatles on and they were fornicating with all the members of Nirvana? Uh, this is uh, true. Uh, we had the Beatles on uh, uh, John Paul George and uh, uh, Murray. <laughs> I mean, you asked him what it was like to hang out with John Lennon, and I think, and you asked him so straight, and I think he said, uh, well, he told me to call him Johnny. (laughs) Was uh, really great. And another thing I noticed, and you're doing it for me, too, is on your show, you were a very generous laugher, even though I think in the comedy clubs, you, again, give no... uh, you're not interested in giving much leeway. Yeah, I don't want to make a comic feel happy. You don't, right? Un- unless he's like 97. And then, then you'll yeah. sit at the Friars yeah, and you'll yeah. laugh along? Yeah, I'll laugh, yeah. And, and so do you feel like much more like who exactly who you want to be when you're on stage? Uh, because you can just be what you are? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. You, you know. You, you know. I, oh, oh, when I'm on stage? Yeah. Do you feel more like who you are when you're on stage? It depends what night. Why? 
Um, cause I don't know. Like there are some nights I, you know, how some nights you feel it, and other night, it, it's like I feel like ninety nine percent of my career I'm doing a bad Gilbert Gottfried imitation. <laughs> You you and you won't know that you mean you because would you feel like you're pulling punches? Is that why? Yeah, not so much even pulling punches, but like I I feel like you know when people come up to me on the street and they go, "You're Gilbert Gottfried," and they'll go into an imitation of me, going, "Hey, you know, in that movie with Eddie Murphy, you are I, if 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 yeah, you got." Two hundred dollars, <laughs> and I feel like you know their imitation of me isn't that much worse than my imitation of me <laughs> most of the time. That's so. That's the level of sort of self disregard that you yeah you have. You're, it's it's kind of like when I you ever watch these actors and then you'll watch a really early movie that they were in. You go, wow. Back then, they were actually acting. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, and it's a, it's like a, a band's first album, a comedian's first, uh, like sort of first ten minutes. Yes. But and you feel like uh, who you were in 1980 and 81 was the pure, like this pure distillation of what you do. Uh, I think so. Yeah. You don't think, and and why do you so why do you think you haven't in your own mind been able to like get back to that place? Ah, it's lack of talent. Simple. Just simply that. <laughs> well, I, it's funny. You know, I remember... So I remember so clearly that first night that I, I saw you. And uh, what I remember was back then you did a character. It was like you gave a tiny oh, handrail. Murray. A tiny handrail to the audience. Yeah. To let them know. I used to put on a an oversized pair of glasses and I'd go... What is this? This isn't the joke. Yeah, this isn't funny. A comedian, you go up there and you make a joke. This isn't funny at all. <laughs> yeah, and I remember, because I remember the one you said, it, it's uh, a joke is, uh, a, and you, you know, you'd come out and you would just be uh, insane, right? Yeah. The, you would attack uh, the audience. They would have stopped clap, clapping and you'd be saying, stop, stop clapping. Yes. And they would have stopped and you'd sort of didn't care and it was Miles Davis like you would you were riffing and doing jazz and going way way far out there and you saw people looking at each other and trying to see is this guy crazy is he a genius and then you would snap into this Murray guy and you would say a joke is uh, you know I want to button my shirt you ever button your shirt yeah. and one button right? <laughs> one button is left over and then because and I remember what you said and this is the thing even at 14 that killed me you said uh, and it, it happened to me and it happens to you, so it's funny. <laughs> Which, like a joke is, did this ever happen to you? And if it happened to you, that's funny. It's a joke. Like, did you ever have one collar of your shirt sticking off? <laughs> And you go, yeah, I did. So that's funny, <laughs> right? And that one, in that, when that one hug, you're destroying the entire generation of observational yes. comedians, <laughs> right? I mean, the guys who who went on right before you and right after oh, yes. you, that was their act. <laughs> First of all, did they ever say anything to you? Did they like how did how did that go over with the other comedians? Um, I I remember 
one time I was on some talk show and they say, you know, you don't do the usual, hey, have you ever noticed? And and I said, well, except for that one bit I do, have you ever noticed when you get into a cab and the cab driver doesn't speak English and then you get like this laundry detergent and you get the shampoo that says rinse and repeat? Why do they have to tell you to rinse and repeat? And did you ever have like someone come up to you in a restaurant who's a waiter and says, hi, my name's Ted. Why do you need to know his name? And afterwards... Uh, Jimmy Walker was on the show, and he turned to me and said, You just did my whole act! Oh, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, like, back then, by doing that, you were, you were giving the audience uh, some kind of signal that you understood their expectations, and you were going to defy them, but oh, you yes. understood them. yes. And then at a certain point, you decided to just discard the handrail. Yes. Right? <laughs> Which is why I think you've kept pushing forward. You're, there's no, I mean, I understand you're self-deprecating, self-loathing person. Self-masturbating. I understand that you can't ban yes. yourself. But that, that's, <laughs> that's clear in everything Well, I like do. to go with the popular opinion. <laughs> yes. But, but when, you like, when you went to the dirty joke phase mm-hmm. of your career and just started doing joke book jokes, right? Yeah. Did did you know that a lot of people would misunderstand it? <laughs> well, you, you you know what I like about the with the dirty joke thing, like with my DVD, is that the a compliment I get there is from the people who know the jokes already, and they go. I I heard that joke when I was seven, and but the way you tell it, yeah. Well, yeah. it was a hilarious thing. That, it yeah. was a hilarious thing for a whole bunch of different reasons. Yes. <laughs> that you, because nobody hates like hack comedians more than you. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you, if I said you could shoot a bunch of dictators or a bunch of hack comedians who tell store-bought jokes. Oh, yes. Who are you shooting? <laughs> then Hitler would live. Right. I'm saying you would. You would ice the, you'd ice the ones who were telling the knock-knock, you yes. know, who were telling street jokes yes. on stage. And then you do tour, you know, all those tours in a row of street jokes. Oh, yeah. Uh which was just so perverse and and great. Did you love like each night? Was it fun to do it for you? Oh yeah. And why? Why? I just like saying the word fucking. <laughs> Good. Because I'm an intellectual comic. No, that's clear. Uh, it's clear that you're. Uh, it's clear that you don't want anyone to think that you're an intellectual no, no. comic in any way. <laughs> that's clear when with the Ethiopia joke. Um, just eat. But uh, what? Uh, when did you know that you thought differently than other people? Because uh, I started to realize other people were more intelligent. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Gee, they know how to read and do their taxes. Well, yeah, that's, but those things aren't important to someone. Yeah. to someone like you. No, when did you know you were? When did you realize you were funny? Oh God. 
You know, that's that's something you have to be convinced of each night. Because, uh, like, you, you never know. It's like one of those... I, I'm one of those people who thinks, like... And, and this is a popular thing. A lot of people think this way. Like, one day uh, the jig is going to be up. Like, I, I feel like... Me having a career in show business is like I snuck into a party that I wasn't invited to. And any day now, someone's going to come over to me with a clipboard and go, "Uh, I'm sorry, your name's not on the list. And then they'll lead me out. And why do you think you feel that way? I, I don't know. It's one of those that's always it's always there. It's always like like I've been fooling the public this long. But and and so yeah, that explains like sort of why maybe you would like take various jobs and do various things. But in your now, I know you're going to hate this word, and I know how straight and earnest I'm being. But I don't care because your works meant that much to me. So I don't really care about it uh, about how earnest I am because uh, you be earnest, I'll be Julio. That's perfect. Okay. Great, and we'll make. <laughs> wine together <laughs> that's great uh but uh but your act the one thing that i think you've never compromised whether you feel because that's what gives lie to this idea that you think you're a fraud because you won't compromise your act man so like why do you think like because right you could have you know you could write jokes that are more easily um compre- you could you could have tailored your act at any point along the way for much more mainstream love. You refuse to do it. So, like, why? God, I I don't know. It's hard to – because I never really think things out that – well, like, people say, how did you develop your style and your type of material and your attitude? And I always think I never sat down and consciously thought of it. And it's it's kind of like when people ask me, you know, your delivery and your voice and everything, uh, how did that come about? And to me, it's like going up to someone on the street and saying, okay, the way you walk and hold your arms and talk, how did how did you first think of that? Sure, I get that in terms of like um, the way you sound or your timing. Like, of yeah. course, that's just uh, – Repetition, doing yeah. your act. I mean, Penn would say, you know, you do your act 10,000 times, you're going to 20,000 times. Yeah. That stuff's just going to happen. Um, but finding in the beginning, right, artists, when they find what their point of view, they begin to figure out what their point of view is. Isn't there a moment where it's like, I want to do more of that? I don't want to be that. Yeah. I want to be this. I don't remember an absolute moment. I remember... I started, like I said, I started doing impressions and I started to branch out. And then I started to like where I didn't care and I just do whatever popped into my head. I remember one time when I was at one of my most creative jobs, I talk about in my book, uh, Rubber Balls and Liquor. And um, it, it was one time I was booked in Ottawa. In Canada, you know, and it was freezing, freezing by Canadian standards. Really cold. Yeah. And and it was a horrible club. And I was booked there and they wanted me to do three different 20 minute sets 
to the same audience. And they didn't have an MC or an opening act. They had some woman who was the owner who went up to introduce me, and she was too scared. So she went off stage and tried to introduce me there, and she didn't know what to say. So then it was just decided I would go on, do a 20-minute set, walk off, wait for a while, and when they'd point to me, I'd go on. Come back on stage. And I was going on, and it was, I was bombing horribly. What kind of material were you doing? I, I was doing some of the impressions, some material that like Bella I was Lugosi yeah. and that, all, that stuff. And But I was, you know, some other material I worked in the clubs. And then I remember I I didn't give a shit at one point, And I thought, I, I don't care. You know, if they kill me, I'd be happy. So I just started doing anything that went into my mind. I And if they walked out, God bless them for walking out. And I just and and I started doing it and I was just like, you know, you know, purging. And I, I remember so that in the first set I did like I think an hour and a half I was there. And the first twenty minutes that yeah, was an hour yeah, and a half. It was an hour and a half. The next one I did about an hour. And then the next one, the last one I did 15 minutes, and the owner comes over to me and goes, you did kind of short. <laughs> <laughs> but during that thing, you're saying you you somehow developed like this, uh, I'm just going to say these things, and I'm not going to. That was when you stopped caring. Uh, yeah, it wasn't that moment exactly. I was Come on, I want to make do, it really big. Yeah, like, yeah. This is See, it the, is, it the, is funny. the violins. Like, like in movies and books, yes. people say, and at that point I knew. And everyone wants that point. Right, no, but I'm interested in the continue. Like, yes, the show is called The Moment, but I am oh. interested in. <laughs> but uh, uh, I am interested in the, no, the continuum. So that was a time where you started to realize the direction you wanted to, yeah. to run in. Yeah. And when you, how old do you think you were then? Ooh, I, uh, I guess early 20s. So early in like the, yeah. the early, and what kind of life were you, were you living, uh, you were living alone then in uh, New York? Where were you living? No, I still live with my you mother. With yeah, yeah, yeah. You were living with your mother. You were going out to do stand up on yeah. the road you would get booked you were already were you starting to gain some sort of a following then? i i remember like early on because i started to experiment on stage and and improvise a lot i started to get like a little bit known around the clubs around the club circle and uh with the other comedians and the bookers or with the the audience too like did you start to see when you started to see like the same people come back again, did you did you notice it? Did it like ma did it start to did that matter to you or did it not matter? Yeah, it it was funny. I I still it to this day I still am kind of surprised when someone comes up to me and said, "Oh God, this is like the tenth time I've seen you," and there is that point in my brain where I go. Well, wouldn't they have watched me once? Said this guy sucks and never come back. <laughs> could, could you, 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 uh, you really don't understand what they're laughing at? Uh, it's, at times I don't, and it's it's a very strange thing. Like in my sh 
in my act, there are certain bits, like one or two bits or jokes, that I know I the audience could be with me like 1%, and I could get a laugh off this joke or that joke. But there are so many bits in my act, like where you got to judge it by level of the audience, that if they're... I, I remember bits I've improvised, and people go off and go, oh, that's a whole new bit. And I go, no, that's a whole new bit, only if the audience is with me 100%. And so you're aware of that. You're oh, tracking yeah. that when you're doing your – you mean you're editing in your no, head I mean, as you go? I mean I could just sense it when I'm doing the bits and going, ah, oh, this is one of those audiences. <laughs> That's, but will, yeah. you, will you decide I'm going to do A or B based on how you feel the audience is that night? Uh, not so much. I switch it bits around, but I don't really do it to the audience taste that much. But it is one of those things that when you're on stage, you are thinking a lot. And you're going, ah, gee, this. You know what I think a lot? Sometimes I'll go into a bit and I'll see, ooh, this audience isn't really up for this bit. And I'll feel like, but it's kind of like when you miss the exit <laughs> on the highway. You got to keep going. Yeah, you got to just keep going and it's going to go, oh, if I could go up across the railing now and turn into the other lane, I would. And do you... Do you like it better when they're really laughing, or do you like it better when you have to work to get them? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, at this point, I like it when they're just playing, laughing. But You do. You like some, it just now. You want to get up there, get them laughing, and get off. But, yeah. But sometimes, uh, sometimes it's magical. Something hits me, and I'll start improvising something, and, and you'll get that uh, same thrill. Is that how you write? Uh, yeah, yeah, all of my bits. I never I never sat down like Jerry Seinfeld or something. He was a real, like, jokesmith. He would, like, I think, wake up in the morning. Well, Jerry, what's your routine? Well, I, I wake up in the morning and I come up with bits. You mean you think it's a job? You treat it like a job? I treat it like a job. It is a job. I like, uh, I have one bit I just came up with recently. Hey, you ever notice what it's like when you open a door? Why do you open a door? Why do they put a door there? Why don't they have places without doors so you don't have to open them? <laughs> but so you know, you know that Jerry, has he ever said anything to you? Has he? I'm sure Howard's asked, but I didn't hear the answer to this. Has Has Jerry ever said, "What do you do that for?" Uh no, no. I the most I've I've heard is like when I was in the clubs, yeah. and no one knew who I was, and no one knew who Seinfeld was. He was like another comic hanging out in the clubs, and I started to do an imitation of him back then, and he had never been on TV, and I'd go up on stage and I'd start going, you know. Uh, why do people drink liquids and eat solid food? Why can't you eat liquids and drink solid food? And and like the other comics and wait staff and bartenders would come in and be in the back. They'd be howling when I was doing that on stage. And I heard the 
Seinfeld never came in when I was doing that. And he'd be pacing back and forth angrily in the bar going, that doesn't sound anything like me. Why does he do me in the ting song voice? But you never, you haven't, you haven't run into him. Uh, no, he's never brought it up to me. When you see him, he'll no. say hi. He'll yeah. interact with you. Yeah. What well, do you I, he's really I, thinking? I'll say hello to him, and he'll say, "Why do people say hello? <laughs> so why can't you greet people with goodbye and say goodbye?" You know you're going you know to end up leaving anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, wasted effort. Why say hello? But so you're, uh, you don't write that way. You don't treat it like a job. No, I, I, the way all my bits came about is I'd be on stage and something would hit me and I'd just start improvising with it. And then each time I'd go on stage, sometimes something else would pop into my head. Were, were you, like, is that how the Gazara, like the Ben Gazara? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Like yeah. a comedian friend of mine, Gary Goldman, who's a really good comedian. I don't know. He, uh, he I was uh, coming over here today, and I, I said, oh, I'm going to interview Gilbert. And he said, I got to know how he came up <laughs> with the Gazara joke, which is like, you know, to hold all of us. Like, you know, this cla- <laughs> just this classic, incredible uh, thing. Do you remember how that started being in your act? I, it, it was I you know it's it's a weird thing because I was I was talking about you know how I uh, once a uh, spaceship landed in front of me and uh, doors opened up and a ramp appeared and this these greenish gray creatures with reptilian skin uh, came out and they surrounded me and they finally spoke and said their leader spoke and said. Ben Gazar is a good actor. Why can't he get a series? (laughs) And the funny thing about this is that it came about organically, Ben Gazar, because one time I remember, after I'd been doing that bit for a while, I got a job in England where... uh, I was going to do that bit on a TV show... And and we started to discuss consciously whether anyone in England knew Ben Gazar and should I substitute it with another name. And when I consciously was thinking, I couldn't think of a name that worked like that it, when my conscious mind. Whereas you could have walked on stage and maybe just said another name. Yeah. But Gazar just came. So that would have happened yeah. just out of an You would have been on stage and suddenly just started going into the... Uh, the Martian bit without even knowing where you were going to yeah, land. Yeah, yeah. And then but that name just popped yeah. out. And then you're able to recognize and to, to like, do you, re- do you record your sets? Uh, no, no. And afterwards, do you write down, like, oh, I got to remember the Gazara bit? For, for a while, I tried to write it down. I had it scribbled on an envelope, all my bits. <laughs> but not the whole bits. I would go... Bengar, <laughs> you know, like uh, chicken shoe. <laughs> That's it, yes. right? And you, so you would in some way, but now you don't bother. Yeah, you just have it, and you'll yeah. just go and do whatever yeah. you want to do. Do you still dig performing? It also depends on the night. Like it's one of those things. Like even when you're not in any mood to do it, you still have to. You can't like slack off. 
Ah, uh, but so you got to still give it a hundred percent. But in the middle of it, does it become like yeah, you're dreading it? In the middle of it, does it become fun, or it sometimes well, it just doesn't? You know, you know, it it becomes once my adrenaline is going. Yeah. Then I I go oh well I know I can still do this, but more and more right before I go on stage. I'm like dreading it and thinking, I can't do this. What the hell am I doing? Right. The self-doubt is still, which is yeah. amazing. I mean, you know, a lot of people who are writers listen to this. And, and uh, the, I mean, the fact that like every writer uh, at times feels like they, they, they don't know how they ever did it. Like they can read what they wrote the day before and recognize, oh, that seems like writing. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, but they feel like, how did I do that? I can never do that again. Yeah, I um I I think they once asked um it 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 may have actually been Bob Dylan. They they named one of his big hit songs like, you know, Mr. Jones or something and said, uh, "Can you write another song like that?" And he honestly said, "No." Right. I I wouldn't be able to write that again. Yeah, Ballad of a Thin Man, that Mr. Yeah, Jones. Yeah. yeah. And and it's uh it's and I mean, I'm not I'm certainly I, I can understand. I remember an interview with him, too, where he said when he was at a certain point, when he was young. It just felt like it was pouring through. Him. Yeah. And so now, I mean, do you feel a sense of that, that it was easier for you to do this before? Or I, does your like craft now make up for whatever sort of the the the, the novelty of, of doing it? Um. Let's see. I don't know. It It goes back and forth. It's like sometimes. You know, I'll find myself working more to get a laugh, and then uh, other times I improvise more. So it's like still, uh, I could still get that feeling, but it's like more and more I like I get up on stage, and you think so much on stage, and you'll think like uh, – Sometimes I'll be on stage and go like, oh, and this is always gets me. I used to hear this with singers and stage actors where they say they're like singing their guts out or acting their guts out. And the whole time they're thinking about what they're going to have for dinner later. Right. And And I find myself doing that a lot like i'll be doing a bit where i'm really i'm jumping around and screaming and yelling and the audience is laughing and in my head i'm going gee i I remember i had a pair of brown socks with like a red line and i i don't know did i throw those out (laughs) well and does that i mean does it bother you that you're not uh as present, or do you think of it as like, uh, in a way, there's a side of you now that can just do that? I mean, does it, do you wish you were as present as maybe you were in the earlier? Yeah, I, I, at times, I, I go back and forth with that, and and at times it's like, um, like like just recently they wanted me to do 15 minutes somewhere for some place I wasn't getting paid, so I didn't give a shit about. And I certainly wasn't going to do material there because uh, yeah, that's right. work. And I just started, like, saying stuff that happened to me recently and joking about it. And I thought, whoa, I woke up for a second. Oh, that, right. Yeah. And then you had to return. Yeah. To your normal self. Oh, yeah. Right, which is, I think, part of what you relate to in Buddy Love. Oh, <laughs> 
right? <laughs> that to be able to be like, uh, you know, to be able to just express like the and really connect to the id part is like what artists. It's kind of like part of what why yeah. you started, right? Well, it, it's just like how I said before about these actors who you watch. And then you look, an older movie of theirs pops up and you go, wow, they were acting back then. Like and and like all these actors, writers, musicians, after a while, you start to develop a bag of tricks. Like I always wanted to um, uh, like the same way, you know, Michael Caine uh, did this video. That's the greatest about. Yeah. About acting. And I always wanted to create a video, but I it would be a hard time getting actors to admit to this or even realize what they're doing and getting actors who have been around for a long time and established and saying, can you teach us a, some of your bag of tricks? <laughs> the bag of tricks tape you want to do? Yeah. Well, that is the Michael Caine thing about always. Oh, on, yes. St- yes. Never the blinking. Eyes. The leading yeah. character never blinks and sort of the way he... Uh, and, and some actors love it, and most actors will say, oh, I haven't read that, but I would never oh, yes. it's a joke, or he doesn't, yeah. you know, they want to ennoble. But, you know, uh, well, that's what's amazing about artists who keep pushing, though. Yeah, because, like, I, because actors, if they really admitted to it, would have to admit that after a while they go, well, I know if I look down and then look up, that's a very dramatic reaction shot. And if I lower my voice between the second and third word and then raise it all of a sudden, that gets a reaction. I'm curious. Do you think that it affects the quality of the performance? Uh, I I wonder. Well, what, I, do you th- I mean, what do you think when you're watching one of those old – when you're watching an actor who's been doing it for 25 or 30 years – like if I watched some old Henry Fonda performances, he was—I feel like he was still—you could find the ones where he was still really in there doing it. Yeah, like Jason Robards in Magnolia. Yeah, is still. Uh, he now maybe it was because he was working with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh yeah, maybe. But they were. Do you know that movie? Oh yes, and yes. You know that he's dying and they're in the bed. To, they're they're uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's taking care of him, and you just—I feel like. Now, maybe he is using his bag of tricks, but yeah. I'm a mark. I don't know the difference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, that's what I do for a living is make movies. I'm a, I, you know, I write and direct movies. That's what I do. And, and like, so if that's a, uh, a, a trick, I guess I'm uh, as, as skeptical and cynical as I can be. I still think that, like, great artists continue to push themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think some do. And some actors, some actors, they get to that point. Where, like when they were young and every movie they did was, it was an experience. It was like, I got to see his next movie because it just, it'll be hypnotic and it'll grab me. And then they get to that point where you go, you know, he's good. He's not a bad actor now, but he's, he's just not on fire. And so do you feel like, uh, Sometimes you're just not on fire? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I get that feeling. And you can remember when you were? Uh, Yeah. It's like, so sometimes I'm on fire, sometimes I'm not. And the trick is that you don't let the audience ever feel that. Well, yeah, there's a great moment in uh, 
in The Insider. I don't know if you remember that movie very well. The Michael Mann movie with Al Pacino. James, oh, James, James oh. Dean isn't in it. Oh, yes. <laughs> James Dean is not in it with Al. <laughs> they did the press tour together. <laughs> they did do the press tour together, but it's Pacino and Russell Crowe. And in the beginning, Christopher Plummer is playing Mike Wallace. Yes. And Mike Wallace starts to get all angry and annoyed and screaming uh, right at the beginning um, about where he should put his chair for this interview with this sheik. Yeah. And you can see he's working himself into a fury. And then Pacino, who plays his producer, looks at him and says, is your blood up? You did it? Yeah. And Christopher <laughs> says, yeah, I feel I'm ready now. Oh, yes. Yes. Because he knew that otherwise he would just be phoning it in. The act, the Mike oh, Wallace. Yeah. It, it's just like there's there's that part in Network where he reminds him, William Hurt reminds Albert Brooks, he goes, William Holden. Oh, no, no. Oh, not Network. Um, oh, you mean in um, the, network the James news. Brooks? You mean the James Brooks Yeah, that movie. was Network Broadcast News. Broadcast News, where um, uh, William Hurt is teaching yeah. Albert Brooks to read the news. And he goes, he goes, when you find yourself reading it, stop. And And then he goes, and then just sell it to them and it's like that that was that's really true because you could be up there just looking at the teleprompter going you know uh today in the midst today in the middies fighting broke out <laughs> and there was uh, 12 people so you have to like stop and go today in the middle east fighting broke out and you have to force yourself yeah, to become present sell it and then hope that by doing that something will a yeah, will yeah. light up in, yeah because when you've been doing it a long time you can let yourself go on autopilot and that that's that's a bad thing so what do you do to try to make that not happen for yourself because it seems to me like you are i know you have kids now and you're married and your uh, other things have become important also to you but it, it seems like you've thrown so much into th- this, the truth of this act for yourself, keeping the act itself oh, yeah. pure, whatever that, like, whatever yeah. that means. So then if you're the guy delivering that one thing that you've not let in any way become compromised, how do you make yourself, like, give a sh- freshly give a sh- Yeah. I... I don't know. Sometimes when I'm on stage, it's strictly a matter of kicking myself in the ass and reminding myself, say, hey, these people are paying to see you. You know, so stop being on autopilot. If I think about if I think about what your act over the years has done, and I think it's there in the Empire State Building thing. And I'm just wondering how, I mean, I know you're consciously aware of it, and even you'll say I'm not smart or I don't read, but everybody, um, people acting bent out of shape or like there was some great hypocrisy and you getting up, some great crime and you getting up there and saying that, these are people who came and got dressed up in black tie 10 days after 9-11 yeah. to watch a pornographer get yeah. made fun of. yes. And so, why why do they get to dread? It seems to me like you were trying to, like, you must have known the reaction you were going to get. Well, it's it's like with that reaction or like the whole big tsunami thing. Yeah, go to, because to me, like, I look at the tsunami thing. Yeah. You know, if you feel that, and I say this to myself, I would say to myself, 
and then go to Japan. Yeah. Yeah, go there, help build, rebuild everything. Like, if you feel that strongly, get on the, get on a, go wait till the storm passes and yeah. get on a plane and say, I'll be back to your work. And by the way, that's a noble, great thing to do. Uh, these people who were upset at your Twitter, they were going, they wanted to have like this little pellet of emotional satisfaction. Yes, they want to pat themselves on the back. Yeah, they want to have like pathos. Yes. And feel good about it. it it's it's like, um, I, I feel like I want to ask each and every person who was like offended by the tsunami jokes, uh, I, like going, okay, when that was going on and you were watching all that footage, how many meals did you miss? Right. Uh, uh, how, how long did you go without bathing or shaving? Did you go to uh, yeah. your, did oh. you do your job? Yeah, yeah. Well you just how many days did you lie in bed unable to get out of bed because you were so upset? I mean that was so so great about the apology you just uh you wrote. <laughs> you wrote this fake apology recently, right? Yes, you... uh, the apology epidemic for Playboy. I wrote it. Yeah, uh, about this this whole idea of people in the media. I mean, what was it what was the point of that? Yeah, it was like, well, I love People in the media, well, the great thing about people in the media is that they'll go, ah, shocking child porn coming up next. Right. You know, so it's like they, and they're like, every time I say a joke that's in horrible taste and the news catches on, they'll repeat the jokes. Well, they'll I'm, print it out. How many of those people are also going to come up to you privately and say, listen, I love what you do? Yes. Yes, they've come up to me right right in between attacking me on camera when they we break for a commercial. I'll go, oh, that one, what, I was laughing hysterically. Right, and then you don't know, I mean, now back to network, you yeah. don't know then which, like, you know. Oh, yeah. Which is the real face. Yeah. And that's the thing, it seems like you are determined, I, I, you know. You, well, it, it's like. I the thing that always makes me crack up is like I think there should be acting awards given to newscasters because they are acting when they're telling the news and and I love when they go from story to story and they'll go uh coming up next a family dies in a fire and do monkeys roller skate <laughs> 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 right. Now, in a sense, though, like in your real life and certainly up for a, a long time, it seems to me whenever I would I, – just as a fan, I met you a few times in 9-11. I was there and I was backstage and I, I shook your hand. You were, you're, you're, a, you're a very polite person in real life. And uh, That sounded like a David Steinberg. You were very polite. You're a very polite person. Gilbert, I don't know why. <laughs> you're – such a, uh, uh, and I love when you did David to David on on that show that he has on Showtime. It's great. Um, but you're a very like polite person, but and, and yet you know the thoughts that you really have. Yes. And so I wonder when you're walking the room, if in a way it's all part of this thing, which is your decision that you're going to be a provocative, like you're you're going to let yourself. Scream because you just wish you could scream off like. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, is that right? Am I? I don't want to like. Is that? 
<laughs> so that you can finally just like be the person you are. But you know, it's weird. I was talking to another comedian. I promised I wouldn't say who he was, but he and and I told him this was you showing huge respect to him, and he I think came around to that because. I think in, in regular life you you go through your life and you're uh, you're polite and, and and courteous to people and uh, you don't let let them know what you're thinking. Like I'm sure yeah. to the, I imagine to the other fathers at the schools, oh, the kids yes, go to yes. you are very much like milk toast, right? Yeah, you're not telling them a lot of jokes, are you? No. <laughs> Do they try to tell you jokes ever? Oh, when people tell me jokes, it's always <laughs> yeah. What do you yeah. do? Yeah. But you went up to this friend of mine. Uh, who I guess was around 55 years old at the time, a guy you've known for a long time in the clubs. And you went up to him, and he had just gotten engaged. You hadn't seen each other in a year, and he was with his fiance. And you walked up to him on the street, and, and he said, Gilbert, this is my fiance, X. And you looked at her, and you said, you could have done better. How often? How often does it sneak out in your yeah. regular life? See, there, there. Once again, it's like the nutty professor. Well, yeah. Like, suddenly, <laughs> like, does that even sound like you? Can you imagine that you really? Yeah. Did all that? of a sudden, something truthfully in your head. You know what? You know what? That reminds me of one time I was at Universal Studios, yeah. and they had their big Back to the Future ride. And I had, I don't know, it was some event I was doing there. And there was this woman who was one of, like, the guides who was taking me on yeah. all the rides. And, you know, they're very much like robots. They have a frozen smile on their face. And they, they have a certain spiel they do for everything. And they're always very pleasant. It's hot in those uniforms. Oh, Yes. And they're talking very pleasant, and this is a very popular ride, and we've had, and uh, uh, we were going to go in the Back to the Future ride, and she was telling me, oh, the Back to the Future ride opened uh, nine months after the movie came out, and we had a big celebration with the entire cast of Back to the Future, where they brought their families and friends, and Everyone had a wonderful time celebrating the Back to the Future ride. And uh, Michael J. Fox was there, as was Leah Thompson and and uh, Christopher Lloyd. And I said, and I had heard stories about Michael J. Fox before he became this holy figure. And I said, and she's going, and everyone had a wonderful, wonderful time. And in the middle of that, I said, oh, what was Michael J. Fox like? And she goes, Oh, he was a dick. <laughs> In front of the whole thing? Yes, yes. Yeah, it just all of a sudden, and then you could see on her face, she caught herself like, oh, my God, I said something that I really felt. <laughs> wow, that's that's hilarious and great. And... uh and uh, I think we're both going to hell for that. I think yes. you just looped me in to that we're going, all I've heard ever is he's a great guy. Yes. And uh, does so much good for people. Uh, I think you walked the room, Gilbert. You just walked me yes. out of the <laughs> room. How dare you, sir? How dare you? How have you no decency, you have Senator? No... Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I just want to see if I had anything else that I could try to annoy you with oh. that I – wanted to ask and you know i'm i'm coming on your show in september so you can um you can get me back 
for this. Uh, oh, I see here you were in the one unsuccessful thing Larry David ever did. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, 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 Norman's Corner. Norman's Corner. And uh, did you know at the time Larry wrote and directed that for you? Uh, did you know yeah. he was a genius? Yeah. <laughs> You'd never know it from that. <laughs> I, so I, I guess this thing, it goes to... Um, so when I listen to you with uh, with Dick Cavett and Penn, Billy West, you're like uh, in full sort of cutting, uh, aggressive, attentive mode. But I, what do you think it is about the old show business figures, Joe Franklin and all that, that um, allows you to kind of bathe in the nostalgia and like kind of let the bull just go by is it something yeah. about those old show business characters like is it is it the overt ambition and the people now that drives you crazy versus them like yeah i i don't know but it's like i said that love hate like like you know i jerry lewis fascinates me but i also love it at the same time sometimes i love it for the wrong reason sometimes i love it for the right like reason. jackie mason yeah who you can, you know, yes, uh, yes. clearly do better than yeah. anybody. But it seems like ultimately you would cut him way more slack yeah. than you would cut the equivalent guy Yeah, today. nowadays, yeah. And um, and he had to be it, as big a tool as any guy uh, yeah. <laughs> Right? Well, I remember what uh, a, a couple of years ago I was in Vegas and and I went to see um, Wayne Newton. Yes. And I remember in my mind, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm watching Wayne Newton. He's a total phony. He's a total sleaze and everything. <laughs> and and then he was on stage. He's introducing veterans who are sitting in the audience. One's from World War II, Korea, ever Vietnam. And he's going... And uh, you know what? Bring a bottle of champagne to that man's table. And bring a bottle of champagne to his table. And then he introduced me as he goes, and it's a great thrill tonight that one of my dearest friends <laughs> in the whole world, one of my closest friends, and, and he says, and, uh, uh, you know, we're going to be talking to Gilbert later. And, uh, but, and then he starts to go, you know, here's a song that was... And he stops like he just thought of it, like he interrupted himself. Cause, and he goes, you know what? Bring a bottle of champagne to Gilbert's table, too. <laughs> and then later on the show, he does his, he's singing and dancing, and I loved it. I, I wasn't laughing for the wrong reasons. I just, you were you were complicit yeah. in it. You were totally yeah, complicit. In it. You yeah. didn't say we're not friends. Yeah, yeah. I thought I. And then he he stops and he's talking after he's been on uh, singing and playing the banjo and uh, trumpet and everything. And then he goes, you know, when you're a performer. The worst thing, the last thing you want to do in your day of is see a, com a, see a show. That's why it's such an honor to have this man with me tonight. He's a movie star. He's a comedian. 
and he's so talented, I hate him. <laughs> and he introduced me, and I felt like I've been, I'm in a time machine. I went back in time to, like, the times of Wayne Newton, Jerry Lewis, Sammy Davis, and I thought, you know, I love this. Right. Yeah. I know. It's like when you listen to uh, Sinatra at the Sands. Yeah. And he comes out and he says, what are all these people doing in my room? Oh, yes. It's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. It's the best thing ever. And you know he said it every oh, night yes. just like that. Yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yet if I said to you, you know, do you understand or have any sympathy at all for Ryan Seacrest? <laughs> yeah, then it's different. If for you, it's different yeah. somehow. Oh, and, and Wayne Newton also said in that same spiel... He said uh, that he, he said uh, I, I was going to be playing. He goes uh, that w where I was going to be playing that night, the next night. And he says, so if you don't have plans tomorrow, go see Gilbert Gottfried. And if you do have plans, cancel them. Oh. And I thought, oh, my God, this I'm floating. Right. And somehow that's just is, the greatest yeah. thing in the world. Well, it's great to listen to your podcast because uh, the genuine emotion you have for these kind of people comes out and you get your guests to tell these uh, really revealing stories about the way they interacted with them and the way they loved them. And it's why I dig the podcast so much. And, and listen, as a podcaster, I mean, the last thing I want to do is listen to another <laughs> podcast. You know what I mean? Especially when Doug I'm not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> when I'm not. Let me swing the mic. When I'm not podcasting. So, listen, I don't know if you plan to listen to a podcast today, make it. In fact, <laughs> if you had other plans, <laughs> cancel them. Yeah. And listen to Mr. Gilbert Gottfried. What's the name of your podcast? Uh, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast that you can hear on GilbertGottfried.com, as well as you can order my book, Rubber Bowls and Liquor, and my DVD, Dirty Jokes. And you could subscribe to my podcast on SideshowNetwork.com or iTunes. And when you're done with that, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Gilbert is on Twitter as well under his name. Oh, at Real Gilbert. And uh, thanks for listening. Gilbert, thanks so much for being here and, and doing this and let me letting me, you know, ask you um, annoying questions and having patience. I appreciate it. Uh, yes. Well, I, I agree. You're very annoying. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Everything my 14-year-old self hoped to get out of this, I got out of it. It was raining hard in Frisco. Uh, I needed one more fare to, to make my night. night. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, Gilbert. Bye. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or... Go to grantland.com and click on podcast.